This is a Federal News Network podcast. If you like going after companies that cheat their employees on wages, this might be the job for you. The Labor Department wants to hire 100 investigators in its wage and hour division. We get more now from the division's acting administrator, Jessica Lumen. Ms. Lumen, good to have you on. Thanks so much, Tom. Glad to be here. So 100 investigators, that sounds like a heavy hire. Where do you look for people elsewhere in the federal government or can people apply from external? Yeah, it's absolutely critical that we make sure that we have enough investigators across the country in the Wage and Hour Division to make sure that we are providing the worker protections that the Wage and Hour Division is here to provide. We protect about 148 million workers across the country, and we enforce things like minimum wage and overtime and child labor protections, as well as the Family Medical Leave Act and government contracting worker protections. So the way that we do that is we make sure that we have investigators in the field, in workplaces, at work sites, to ensure that workers are getting their rights. So we did announce a really large hire, and that's because we know that we need more workers across the country to help protect workers. And we did that in nine different regions so that we could make sure that we spread out the new workers as much as we possibly could. And we're really excited. We got over 3,000 applicants for these jobs. And that just, again, demonstrates a number of things. One, which is that there are so many people across the country who are interested in public service. And that is what coming to work at the Wage Now Division is about. And also the hope and goal that we have been thinking about how can we increase the diversity of our own workforce in the Wage and Hour Division so that our workforce reflects the people that we're trying to protect across this country, sure. including low-wage workers. So to answer your question, we do hire folks from within federal government to come and work for the Wage and Hour Division. We also hire new graduates. We hire veterans. And we really focus on making sure that language skills are really, really important for Wage and Hour Division. So really wide, diverse area that we draw from and really excited about people who want to come and work with us. And what skills do people need to be an investigator for Wage and Hour? Well, first and foremost, we are a mission-driven organization. And so really a commitment to making sure that you want to help protect workers is our first and foremost goal. You do need a college degree in order to be considered an investigator, which is just one of those criteria that we have. This is a professional job that we continue to hire for, and there's a career ladder and career progression through the federal government once you join the Wage and Hour Division, and we try to make sure that we provide comprehensive training on investigative skills, understanding the laws that we enforce, and continuing to develop folks' professional skills. So you don't have to know everything about Wage and Hour in order to come to Wage and Hour. We want to make sure that you really are committed to sure. the professional development that we are providing around making sure that investigators have the skills that they need to protect workers. Because the regulations and statutes that govern all of these different areas, as you mentioned, minimum wages, overtime, child labor, even working with the Office of Federal Contractor Compliance Programs, another part of labor, is all of this in a format that people can access electronically and do searches and have maybe a little bit of artificial intelligence for the problem at hand, or do they have to thumb through thousands and thousands of pages? So in order to do our work, we really have continued to use more innovative tools. To your point, there's so much more information available. There's so much we are really we call a planning organization. So we look at industry mapping. We look at how we can make sure we understand where violations are most likely to occur. So we do all of that work so that we can really be as impactful as possible. 
because with 148 million workers at 10 million workplaces, we have to really be focused on low wage workers that are vulnerable to exploitation that are most likely to need our help. And so we do that through using all of the tools that are available to us. And so I think that the skill set that are really, we just continue to develop and continue to evolve at the wage and hour division and the folks that are in the field, the folks that are training folks in the field and the new investigators that will join us are just really critical to this innovation as well as to the development of strong worker protection programs. We're speaking with Jessica Lumen. She's acting director of the wage and hour division at the Labor Department. And when you hire someone, how long does it take for them to become productive? I imagine there's a pretty steep learning curve and that they have to have some training period. Yeah, absolutely. And we, uh, again, the Wage and Hour Division has been incredibly committed to career development and professional development and training. And it's actually something that's held up in the entire Department of Labor, as well as across federal government. We have what we call Basic One. It's an intensive cohort-based training program. So all of these new investigators will come in and they'll learn together about the laws that we enforce, as well as all of the tools and techniques that we use to enforce those laws. And then they start being mentored in the field. And then we bring them all back in for what we call basic two. I know we're not very creative in our names for training, but bring them in for that follow-up. So it's initiation and then experience. And then we do additional training to make sure. And that all happens within the first 18 months to 24 months of someone starting with the wage and hour division so that they really develop the confidence, skills, tools, understanding of how to do our work. And those that are already established and become proficient at this, do they do most of their work from the office or do they visit workplaces and talk to people on sites? The reason that we're called investigators is because we actually go to work sites, we visit where workplaces are, we interview workers, we interview employers, we conduct conferences with workers and employers, and really try to get to a really strong understanding about how we can help employers be in compliance with the laws and make sure that workers get their paycheck on payday the way it should be. That's our first and foremost goal is to prevent violations and to make sure employers understand their obligations and workers understand their rights. And then we also do on-site investigations where when we find violations, we remedy those violations and we get the back wages for the workers who should have had those wages in the first place. Yes, I read the press releases and it's amazing how many cases do come up each week and how do cases come to the attention of the Labor Department? Is it mostly people phoning, you know, almost like a whistleblower situation where people call in and say, hey, we're being cheated out of overtime or there's a 12-year-old working here in a frozen meat warehouse? So we recover about $230 million in back wages last year for about 190,000 workers. We do about 25,000 cases a year. Those cases come to us in two ways, to your point. One is we have 200 offices across the country. We have a 1-800 number and a lot of people and their advocates and people who care about them call us and say, I think this person's supposed to be getting overtime. I think I'm supposed to be getting time to express milk for my nursing child. Like with all of the laws and they call us and they ask us for help. And so a lot of the cases that we do are initiated from complaints and people who call us and ask us for help. But we also at the Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division, we also initiate cases based on our strategic initiatives and based on our data-driven strategies around where low-wage workers are most vulnerable to violations but are least likely to come to us and complain, either because they aren't aware of or concerned about retaliation for making their complaints. 
So we do both. And we find that we are able to have a really big impact on worker protections because we do both complaint-based and agency-initiated work. And are your investigators, do they have law enforcement powers? That is to say, if they want to initiate an investigation, you know, the company can say, well, you can't set foot in my property. Or can they set foot where they need to go? So we have a lot of authority uh, in the wage and hour division, uh, but there's a sort of two different ways that we approach it. We have a lot of authority where employers are required to keep records. They're required to provide us records. They're required to demonstrate their compliance with the laws. And for the most part, we get cooperation from employers because they understand and recognize that this is our obligation. When we do find issues related to particularly concerning issues around human trafficking or criminal violations, we work closely with our criminal law enforcement partners at those state, local, and federal levels, and we make referrals to federal criminal law enforcement agencies where necessary. But for the most part, the work that we're doing is really about, we go into workplaces, we help make sure workers are getting the rights that they're supposed to have, and if they're not, we get them the wages that they're supposed to get. And with that 25,000 cases a year, Are you in a backlog situation? I mean, a lot of government casework, sometimes the caseloads pile up so that they're backlogs of lots of cases, let's say, and it could be two, three, four years. What's your backlog like and how fast can you close? Sure. So it depends, of course, because we are opening cases based on both complaints and directed initiated investigations, we really manage our caseload in that way. That also does, to your point, mean that there are some cases that we may not be able to take, right, because we're trying to be as strategic as possible and as impactful as possible. Also, answer your question, a wage and hour case can take, it varies, really. Sometimes a wage and hour case is as much as a worker saying, hey, I didn't get my last paycheck from my employer. And that means that a wage and hour person calls up that employer and says, you need to provide this worker their last paycheck, and we resolve it. And that case gets closed, and we are able to help that individual worker and move on. So those are some of our cases. And then a lot of our cases really require a good deal of payroll review, document analysis. Was there a longstanding, our statute of limitations is about two years. So for the last two years, who didn't get paid overtime? And how can we make sure that those workers get their overtime that they were supposed to get? And of course, those cases do take us longer. But again, our goal is always to make sure that we get the recovery for the worker that they are supposed to get. So do you have a backlog then? I guess what I would say is we don't think about it as a backlog. We think about it as we want to make sure that we are trying to close our cases as quickly as possible, but we are also trying to be diligent in how we do our investigations so that we have the strongest cases at the time that we do close those. But that said, one of the reasons we want to hire more investigators is because more investigators means we can do more cases. And that's really our goal and our focus is we want to be where workers need us, when they need us, in their workplaces, everywhere across the country, so that if they have an issue, they know that they can come to the Wage and Hour Division and we can help them. And at the end of the hiring, how many investigators are you authorized to have? So we continue to try to increase the number of investigators. Just candidly, we want more. There are always going to be need more investigators. We always want to have as many investigators as we can. So we anticipate that this is the first round of a hiring program uh, that we will continue to invest in over the next several years so that we can continue to bring more folks into the wage and hour division and into the field. So is it thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds? What is the workforce? Give us the order or magnitude of that investigative workforce. 
Sure. Right now we have between seven and 800 investigators across the country. And again, we're trying to continue to build up our ranks so that we can have more workers protected across the country. Jessica Lumen is acting director of the Wage and Hour Division at the Labor Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. 
How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often 
oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. A financial plan isn't just about money. It's about what matters most to you, like protecting your family, supporting your community, and building a legacy for future generations. At Northwestern Mutual, we start with a conversation about the life you want to live now and years from now. Whether you're paying down debt, saving for college, or planning for retirement, we have an eye on your bigger picture. Get access to our financial expertise at harlem.nm.com. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, headquartered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast1 to learn more and start your free trial.